Good evening, church. How are you all doing this evening? So um, we've been going through, we're going through the latest series in our year of biblical literacy called The School of Life. Um, the wisdom literature that we have walked through has shown us the tension between various ways of understanding life's ups and downs in our faith. Uh, last week, Charla spoke to us about uh, Ecclesiastes and the search for meaning. And she talked about how while there is no ultimate meaning in earthly things, this should actually free us from the compulsion to imbue everything that we do with significance and instead just experience things as gifts from God. Um, today, I'm going to talk a little bit about the flip side of that equation and the, the darker moments in life, the harder things we have to endure, and the process of lament um, and how we endure those moments of darkness faithfully as a people and as a community. We're really bad at this in American culture, to be honest. Um, and to prove to you how bad we are at it, I want to give you a little thought experiment. So uh, a lot of you may have joined a community group this past week, um, or some of you will do it next week. So imagine yourself in a new community group, right? There's five to eight people. You may be somewhat familiar with one or two of them. Most of them are new to you. You're just meeting for the first time. And the leader of that community group is probably going to start with some sort of an icebreaker, right? They want to get people talking, get you to know each other a little bit. So imagine this, uh, the leader of the group asks a question, and they say, what was the happiest moment of your life? And you go around the room, and everybody answers, and you hear stories about you know, people getting married, or babies being born, or wonderful adventures that people went on, grand vacations, all kinds of interesting things, right? It's a good icebreaker. It helps you get to know them. It tells you something about what they think is important, what they find meaningful. Um, you, you sort of start to feel the social glue that people like pull back from, loosen up. Now imagine that same scenario, um, and instead of that question, this is the question they ask. What is the saddest moment of your life? And just think about how you would feel sitting there. There'd be a lot of silence, I would imagine. Some of you would probably be thinking, how do I get out of here? <laughs> <laughs> and no one would want to talk. People would sort of shift in their seats. No one wants to start. That's a tough conversation. But the thing is, those dark moments in our life are often the most revealing. They're often the things that are more true about us. But the cultural aversion to them that we have, that we carry with us everywhere we go, is so strong because we only want to reveal ourselves based on our positive experiences. And when, it, yeah, when it's often our pain that reveals us more clearly and more honestly. So a community that laments well is important because without it, we can become a church for the fortunate. A church that makes those who face darkness or struggle feel as if they don't fit, or if they have, as if they have done something wrong, or worse, that they don't belong here. When the exact opposite is actually true, the story of God in Scripture is a story filled with God's compassion for those who suffer or who find themselves on the margins. We cannot be fully who God intends for us to be if we do not spend time in lament. As I reflected on this series that we've been going through of the wisdom tradition, I was constantly turning over in my head my own story. Maybe you were as well. 
I think one of the truly beautiful things about the Table Church is the fact that we have all arrived here from very different places. Um, some of us come from high church traditions, Catholic or Episcopalian. Some of us come from evangelical backgrounds or Pentecostal. And we sort of form this interesting mix. Similarly, many of us have come from different kinds of life, different walks. Some of us have had very happy lives, um, the kind of thing you would see on like a, a Friday night sitcom. I don't know if anybody remembers Family Matters or Full House. Um, you know, the problems are really unsubstantial and more humorous than anything else. You know, honestly, this is the kind of life I'm hoping my daughter has. Uh, I hope that she experiences the strong, stable support of a family that stays together. I hope that she never has to worry about where her needs are going to be met. But the truth is that a lot of us have not lived those kinds of lives. And I would bet that it is more of us than it appears on the surface sometimes. But regardless of how many challenges you have been through personally or walked through with other people, you need a community that knows how to lament well. Because believe it or not, whether it is your lament or someone you live in close community with, sharing that experience with them makes you more whole. We talk a lot about community here at the table. You've probably heard it 10 times already tonight. Um, and community does not always come easily. It is um, something that is easy to say and not always easy to live into because the better you get to know people, the less shiny and bright they seem and the more their pain and their flaws start to come through. But we believe that it is important because it is actually the mechanism by which we are healed of our pain. To be known and to be loved is to be gradually recast into the person you were created to be. So it may seem counterintuitive when I tell you that lament, this journey through suffering and pain, is one of the cornerstones of community. Because whether you are experiencing a season of darkness yourself, or you find yourself living in close contact with someone who is, to lament well is to face up to that darkness, unafraid, and unflinching as a testimony to the knowledge that it is only through relationship with God and a life lived among Christ's body, the church, that we can be made whole again. This is sort of the function of the book of Lamentations. Um, it is a book that does not get read a lot in the American church, um, particularly, I think, because it doesn't really resolve to a happy ending. Um, even the most prophetic books in the Bible that are, you know, raging against huge social ills usually wrap up with something about God's glory or his majesty and, and how he will redeem his people. The book of Lamentations doesn't really do that. It's, it's a long poem um, that doesn't offer a lot of silver lining. It's just, it articulates grief and pain and sadness in really visceral ways. Um, it was written after the Babylonians destroyed Israel. They burned the temple to the ground and sent much of the nation into exile around 587 BC. Its use in the Jewish rabbinic tradition is primarily in connection with the observance of the fast of the ninth of Av, which is a date said to be the saddest day in the Jewish calendar. It is supposedly the day that after being freed from Egypt, and entering the land of Canaan, 
um, the Israelites sent a set of spies into the land to scope it out. And 10 of the 12 spies returned with the report that the land was unconquerable, that they had been sent on a fool's errand, and there was no way they would ever take possession of the land God had promised to them. And so on the 9th of Av, the Israelites accepted that report and despaired, and they fell into weeping uh, for the holy night. And then from that point forward, that the, um, it became a day of weeping and misfortune for the rest of, of history. It turns out to be the exact date that the first and the second temples were destroyed. First was by the Babylonians, and then the second by the Romans um, after Jesus' time. So the book of Lamentations is read in its entirety, it's only five chapters long, in the synagogue during the day of fasting. Interestingly, one of the conditions of the fast is to avoid any pleasurable activity, and since the reading of the Torah is considered joyful, it's forbidden, except for two books, the book of Lamentations and the book of Job. They both contain enough suffering that it is apparently not uh, considered joyful to read them. And so the content of the whole book is, is all over the place, a little bit, honestly. Um, there is one verse you might recognize, chapter 3, uh, verse 22 and 23. It says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. If you come from a tradition that uses a hymnal, you probably recognize that line from Great is Thy Faithfulness. Uh, it's a, it was written by an American in the 1880s. Um, and I think in a perfectly American fashion, they plucked that one verse that offers a shred of positivity and turned it into a song. Uh, I mean, it's literally surrounded by grief and pain and horror everywhere. And that's the one verse that we sing songs about in church. So, but I want to also reflect 10 verses earlier than this verse. There is a, a paragraph that accuses God, and it writes in this way, starting in verse 13. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and given me gall to drink. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. At times this book cries out to God for mercy. It accuses God of forgetting his people. It blames God for inflicting this harsh judgment upon Israel. And it wonders whether God has ultimately forgotten his promises and his people. Honest lament can be like that sometimes. It's a bit wild, often incoherent. Sometimes you just have to wail in pain or scream at something. I find it interesting that the entire book of Lamentations, except for the last chapter, is written in an acrostic in Hebrew, um, which means that each verse starts with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and each chapter goes through the alphabet once. It's almost as if the author knew that this poetry would seem incoherent and contradictory and wrote it in this very intentional structure, just so you would know that it was really meant to read this way. So the whole book of Lamentations is a communal response to a difficult story. And that is something that we don't do a lot in our cultural context. Um, as I was thinking about 
sort of cultural parallels for how we might understand practice of lament, the closest thing I could think of was uh, the practice of testimonies, which um, in my tradition was pretty common, the, um, especially in evening service. I grew up in the Church of the Nazarene, which is a you know, old-fashioned holiness church tradition. Um, we had two services a day, and you were expected to go to both, not pick one or the other. Um, and the evening service often was characterized by um, people would just feel the need to testify. And they would get up in the middle of the service, and they would interrupt sometimes in the middle of the pastor's sermon. Um, please don't do that tonight. But, um, <laughs> and they would, they would just bear out what was on their hearts. And sometimes they were happy things. They were praises for, you know, prayer requests God had answered. But oftentimes they were difficult things, uh, things people were struggling with, hard times people had come upon. And some of the most impactful services of my life were ones that actually stopped midstream and people would gather around someone and pray for them and just try and, and support them during that difficult time. And so um, I thought that I might share some of my own testimony this evening. Um, it turns out that a lot of my own story is a, is a lament. Um, that'll become clear in a minute, but I think that through my walk in this living out this story and then reflecting on it in community throughout my life, um, there are three things that I think have been a part of the way that lament has shaped my faith. And if you're, if you're a note taker, I think that the main point is really this. What is lament for? It allows you to be known. It causes you to be grounded. And it allows for your healing. Uh, to be known, I mean... It reveals us for who we are, and when we tell our story, it reveals the world for what it is, and we're honest about the hard times in our lives and the things that we have to deal with. To be grounded, I mean, there's a lot of darkness and despair in my own story, but it is grounded in a larger story of God at work. And to be healed, I mean, the process of lament has opened me up to the healing work of God in all kinds of ways, through my personal relationship with God and through my relationship with the people of his church. Um, ultimately, it is a story of healing, even if it is a sad one at times. So um, to start the story, I grew up in a, in a storybook Christian home, really. Uh, I have a family picture, actually. Um, who doesn't love embarrassing family photos? <laughs> Um, I actually texted my sister this photo, which she's the one that looks a little off in the bottom right, um, or bottom left. <laughs> and her response was, oh great, you happened to use the one where I, I looked drugged or something. So um, I'm the oldest of three. That's me on the upper right. Um, I have a younger brother and a younger sister. Um, my parents... Well, my father studied theology, just like I did, actually, but he quit his degree early to take a job and to get married. He ended up teaching Sunday school class. Um, we went to a pretty large church of about 600 people. His Sunday school class was attended by well over 100 people on any given week. He was a dynamic teacher and a pillar of the community. My mother was an elementary school teacher, an Avon lady, and she served as World Missions, World Missions President for our Nazarene Church District for more than 20 years. We read Bible stories from a giant illustrated children's Bible before bedtime each night and said our prayers as a family. 
We were at church every single time the doors were open. That meant Sunday morning at 8.30 for a 9 a.m. Sunday school until church let out at noon. Then we went to lunch with friends and came back at 6 p.m. for evening service. Then on Wednesdays, we came for Bible study in the evenings, um, and my siblings and I attended what is called caravans, which is um, basically the Nazarene church's way to keep us out of Boy Scouts. Um, <laughs> because they weren't Christian enough. So we would, we would spend time memorizing Bible verses and articles of faith from the Nazarene manual and, um, and learn how to build fires and stuff. So um, my parents were loving and kind. Um, me and my siblings were happy, well-adjusted kids. We were surrounded by a huge church community. In many ways, my childhood was life as it should be. It was beautiful, carefree, filled to the brim with love. My father especially was my hero. I mean, he was a man of incredible mental strength and unyielding principles. When he decided to do something, it was as good as done. And if he knew in his heart that something was wrong, there was no force on earth that could make him yield. He was raised on a farm in the Dust Bowl of Kansas by my grandparents who got married during the Great Depression. Uh, for this and many other reasons, he was wired to live life maybe a little too intensely. The hardest thing for him to do was always relax. When I was 10 years old, my dad's Sunday school class went on a weekend retreat camping trip to a nearby state park. A few of my friends and I went riding our bikes through the woods while the adults had a Bible study. It's so strange, but I, I actually recall in vivid detail moments of that bike ride. The smell of the pine trees in the woods, the birds chirping in the morning air, the hilly roller coaster of a trail darting through the trees. It's only a slight exaggeration to say that this was the last truly carefree moment of my childhood. While my friends and I were riding bikes, my dad was giving the Bible study lesson to his Sunday school class. When he wrapped up, he had just finished a series that he was working through, and he told the group that he usually has a sense of where God is leading him to speak next time, but that he hadn't felt led to, do, to prepare anything, so it would have to be a surprise. After everybody dispersed, my dad grabbed a soda, and after a few sips, the can fell out of his hand. He bent down and picked it up, but he picked it up upside down and just stood there, continued talking while it was pouring out on the ground, not realizing what was happening. My friends and I didn't arrive back at the camp for another 30 minutes. When we got there, I'll never forget the looks that people gave me some of the most pained, aching stares that I've ever seen in my life. Come with us. There was an emergency and we need to go to the hospital, someone said. Nobody knew how to explain to a 10-year-old that his father had collapsed and been carted away unconscious. The next few days felt like I was heavily sedated and only occasional moments rose to full consciousness. It turned out my father had a brain aneurysm he was kept alive by life support for a few more days, but he never regained consciousness, and he was declared brain dead. My mother had to make the decision to turn off the life support. And just like that, he was gone. Now at this point, you might be hoping that the clouds would part, the sunlight would break through, that healing and blessing would come, and we could put a nice bow on another neat proverb of the faith. But that's not often how life goes. I became an angry kid, then an out-of-control teenager, 
filled with rage at a God I could no longer call my own. My father's funeral was attended by 600 people. Virtually every person in our church came. And all of the encounters I had with adults pretty much fell into one of two categories. They said something cliched and meaningless because they couldn't bear the silence of just standing there. Or they hugged me and cried. There was nothing to say. There are no words that can make that better. No grand scheme of things that matters even one bit in that moment. It was a true pit of despair. For a 10-year-old kid who watched his father, his hero, die, there is nothing to say that will help that even slightly. My teenage years were pretty wild. I, uh, I got into a lot of trouble. I got in fights with other students, once with a teacher. I was suspended several times, expelled twice. I ended up in an alternative high school for juvenile delinquents. I worked at a grocery store to help my mom pay the bills uh, after we lost my father's income, and some of my relatives later told me they were afraid that I would work there my whole life because I wasn't going to finish high school. But my mom loved me fiercely. She was an unstoppable force of love. She would defend me to people who would question my character. She would stand up for me when I was clearly wrong. And she would fight for me with school administrators when I didn't deserve it. She was the clearest picture of God's love that I have ever seen. And my deepest regret is how badly I often treated her. <sighs> but through all of this, I kept showing up at church. I went to youth group, Sunday school. I went to summer camp. I got in a lot of trouble at summer camp. <laughs> I'm not really sure why I kept coming to church. I didn't really believe much of anything at that point. Um, but looking back on it, I can see that it was really the warm embrace of people who loved me, who knew me, who understood why I was so out of control and angry. Everywhere else I went, I was the bad kid. I was the kid that nobody wanted their kids to be around. <laughs> but at church, I was the hurting kid because they knew my story. Being loved in a real relationship is so different from our abstract ideas of love. Often it is as simple as seeing pain in need of grace instead of seeing a problem that you want to escape in another person. When I was 15 or so, my mom got a blood clot in her leg and had to get some minor treatment for it. But during the blood work, she tested positive for leukemia, which is the cancer of the blood. They caught it early. She went through chemo, lost all of her hair. She decided that instead of a wig that she would wear colorful bandanas because she thought they looked fashionable. We all joked with her that she looked like a pirate. <laughs> she said she was starting a new fashion trend. But for Halloween one year, she did wear an eye patch, and she loved that. <laughs> A year later, she went into remission. We were so happy that we threw a party. But the cancer came back, and this time it was worse. Stage four had a very low chance of survival. The treatments that she received meant that her body couldn't produce enough platelets, and so she needed a transfusion of them 
I happened to be the only one of my siblings who was a perfect match for her blood type. And so every Tuesday, I left school early to go to a blood bank and have my blood run through a machine. Um, and if, I don't know if you've ever donated platelets. It's really unpleasant. They put a needle in one arm and pull the blood out. It goes through a machine that separates the platelets, and then it gets put back into another e needle in your other arm. But when it goes back, it's several degrees colder than it was when it came out. And um, when you need a large quantity of them, you have to sit on the machine for 30 to 45 minutes. And having your core temperature lowered by a few degrees causes you to violently tremble. So I did that every week for almost a year. And despite how horrible it was, it was my favorite moment of the week. Because it was the one time in the entire process that I could do something. <laughs> I could take action. I could say I was doing something that might help. After a long fight, it became clear that my mother was nearing the end. The last time I visited her in the hospital, I had just turned 18. It was one or two days after my birthday. I stopped by late in the evening. She could only stay awake for 10 or 15 minutes at a time because of the pain medicine that she was on. I sat on her bed and she asked me about school, whether I had decided about going to college because through some miracle I managed to graduate high school. She said she was proud of me and she loved me so much. After she started to fall asleep from the pain medicine, I hugged her and kissed her cheek and I turned and walked out of the hospital alone. I still remember the moment when those automatic doors at the hospital parted and I looked out into the night, and I, I knew that I was walking into the rest of my life without my mother. It was the most alone I've ever felt in my whole life. She slipped into a coma and died a few days later. Later, I, um, I ended up feeling a call to study theology in college. Um, now I joke that it was because God knew I would need four years of professional help to unpack my life's experiences in order to produce a theology you'd actually want to share with anybody. <laughs> Honestly, as I was writing this story down, um, everything in me really wanted to wrap this up on a high note. <laughs> I mean, the cultural programming there is pretty strong, but to be honest with you, I can't wrap this up into a neat and tidy package. Uh, it was a messy story. It was hard. All I can really do is offer it as my lament. And I think sometimes that practice might be a, a spiritually beneficial one for us to learn that we don't have to find a happy ending to every story. I'm now 15 years removed from this story. And honestly, I only started to feel whole again in the last three to five years. But the function of telling this story is actually not all that different from the function of reading Lamentations in the life of Israel. I mean, first, it makes me known. You know something about me. Even if we've never met before, uh, you'll understand why I'm so weird if we do meet. <laughs> The same way an Israelite who spends time in, during the fast of the ninth of Av sitting 
in a service that recites lamentations could not possibly come to believe that what it means to be God's people is that your existence will be easy or painless. Similarly, my story is an affront to people who want to tell you that good Christian people have prosperous, comfortable lives. I am at once a testimony to a broken world and to a God who has acted and continues to act to bring about its healing, no matter how dark or broken or out of control or angry it might be. Lament is what shields us from the prosperity gospel, whose only use for God is as a justification for their excess. And it reveals to us the truth of God's pursuit of a broken world. Secondly, lament grounds us. It grounds our despair in a larger story. Almost anything can seem overwhelming when experienced in isolation. For the Israelites, Lamentations was the communal voice of thousands of stories far more difficult than mine. I mean, there are references to people being murdered in the street and families carried off to slavery and everything they've ever known bulldozed in front of their eyes. But it's one book in a much larger story. In my experience, the key factor in whether or not you will fall into complete despair is how insular you become. When you carry pain in your own mind and you never reveal it to anyone and you never admit that it is bothering you and you try to hide anything that might make you look unhappy to anyone else, there's no bigger story that you can be called into because you are the only one in your head. If you live in there by yourself, you'll be miserable and overwhelmed and what was sadness will become despair every time. It's the act of lamenting as a community. Even if it is just saying the words out loud for someone else to hear that starts to impose the truth on us, that the story of God is bigger than the story of me. If you want to be filled with God's love and God's grace, you have to learn to become an instrument of God's love and God's grace in the life of someone else. Relationship is required. My story is a difficult one. Um, I mean, it's hard to even tell it without feeling, feeling some of that pain again, and the process of writing it down has been hard on me, to be honest. Um, but ultimately, my story is not a story of death and despair. That's the story I tried to write inside my head sometimes, and there were dark times when I came to believe it. But ultimately, it is a story of God's fervent pursuit of my resurrection. He pursued me in my mother's unconditional love when I spiraled out of control and I didn't deserve it. He pursued me with shoulders to cry on, with mentors who sat with me and listened to me scream curses at the night sky, with friends and families who invited me into their homes, who treated me like their own children. This is the larger story of God at work, and it's the story of a broken world made whole. And finally, lament opens us up to healing. Um, I, there is something spiritually important about the act of sharing ourselves honestly. Whether that be in joy or in pain or in boredom or in discontent, turning our insular personhood into an outward 
connection can transform us and heal us because that is how God made us. We are meant for relationship with God and with each other. And not just the thin gruel of happy Instagram photos and selfies with your friends. We were meant to experience the totality of life together as the body of Christ. One body. When one of us hurts, we share that pain. When one heart leaps for joy, we all rejoice. And we cannot live into that calling if we wear happy masks and refuse to lament. I'm sharing my lament in the hopes that you will be more willing to share yours, whether you've experienced them in the past or you come to experience them in the future. I can honestly hardly, oh, sorry. Whether you, yeah, whether you experience them in the past or in the future, or if you can, so that you can know that it is okay to sit and lament with others and not feel the need to do anything but be present. I can honestly tell you that I, can, I don't remember a single time when someone's words made my pain go away. In fact, the only time that I really remember something someone said helping at all was a friend of mine, um, a good friend. I was at my mother's funeral. Um, and it, I mean, it's just an exhausting process. I had been trying to engage people in as normal a way as possible for so long, and I was so tired, and I just like shrunk to the back of the room and tried to escape. And one of my good friends comes up to me, and he tells me a joke. Now, that's a bold move to do at someone's mother's funeral. But he knew me, and he knew, I don't really remember the joke, but I remember that I started to laugh, and as I started to laugh, for just a moment, the tears of pain became tears of happiness. And it was one of the most tangible moments that I've ever felt God's grace in my life. And that's the kind of thing that happens in real community. It's not often something you say. It's just allowing yourself to be a strengthening presence, to be to provide an opportunity for God's spirit to move, to heal you or someone else. Whether it's a comforting touch, just a simple presence with someone who so they aren't alone, or your acts, an act of care or grace. I hope that you will resist the uniquely American temptation to brush aside lament or mask it as if it were happiness in disguise that you would know that the deep human need to lament can be a means to strengthen your faith and not to shake it. My lament may be a little bit more dramatic than some, but we all have pain in our hearts and we all need healing. And God's plan to heal that pain is through community that does not flinch at it. Because of my particular story, I lament all the time, to be honest. Um, I couldn't bear to celebrate my own birthday again until I was 27. Every life milestone that my parents didn't get to see tugs at my heart. And many days of celebration end with a mixture of melancholy lament with whatever gratefulness I might have. But this story has given me gifts as well. I am entirely unflinching when I encounter other people's grief. If you ever need someone to sit with you in a moment of despair, I can be that person. 
I have also intimately witnessed the power of the body of Christ to heal, even when those doing the healing have no idea what they're doing. And I've been given the gift of a passionate heart that breaks for those for whom life is not just unfair or unfortunate as mine has been, but are genuinely unjust. It's through learning to lament well that I have gained the strength to see injustice for what it is and to have the emotional endurance to play some small part in setting the world right. These are just some of the fruits of a life filled with lament. So whether or not you've experienced a moment of darkness yourself, the spiritual practice of lament as a community is essential for a fully formed faith. It enables us to be known and to know the world in truth. If we do not admit our laments, then we do not really know each other, and we have not really grappled with the world as it truly is. It grounds us in God's story and protects us from our cultural instincts to hide from pain and try to author our own story. And finally, it heals us. We are cracked open, exposed to one another, and restored in thick relationship as God intended us. I honestly think the delivery of this sermon is in some ways like a performance art piece or something because when I delivered it this morning, um, afterwards several people like came up, like strangers, people I don't know, were bawling and hugging me. And I mean, like, that's fine. If you want to do that, it's okay. I'm, I'm fine with it. But I was like, I mean, they started telling me their life story, like right there at, at the end of the service. And I'm like, I mean, this is how we are made. This is how we are wired. Someone tells and shares who they are, and it starts to loosen, and, and community is formed in some just mystical interplay that happens there. But it requires you to move, to lament with people, and to be okay with that. So whether you experience these kind of moments yourself or you simply hear stories of lament recited from others, you can be strengthened in the knowledge that we worship a God who is in the resurrection business. That, and he uses the body of Christ, the people in this room, to do much of that work. As we are about to approach this table um, and remember the body and the blood of Christ, we believe that we become the body and the blood of Christ so that we can take part in the resurrection work of God in each other's lives as well. God uses the spiritual practice of lament to pour out his grace into our broken hearts and to make them whole again. Let us pray. Lord, may we remember who you are, and may we not hide from our pain. May we be a people who are known by you and by your body, the church. Lord, ground us in your story. Draw us into the future that you would have for us that the whole earth and all within it may be healed by your grace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.